Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 14 of the Unknown Friends Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wham Productions, and I so appreciate you taking the time to listen to my book reviews. Currently, we are in the middle of discussing J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, which is the fifth trilogy I have reviewed this season, and today we're focusing on the second book in the series, titled The Two Towers. Now, if you haven't yet listened to my last episode, episode 13, I would recommend you do that before you keep listening to today's discussion, since last time I shared a lot of background information on Tolkien's life and career and his process of developing The Lord of the Rings, and all those details will help put today's conversation in context. So this week, we will be discussing more of the trilogy's deeper themes and the ways that Tolkien's Christianity subtly comes through in his writing. And we'll look especially at how we see these things at play in Book 2, The Two Towers. But first of all, let's just situate ourselves by quickly summarizing what happens in this middle book of the trilogy. The Fellowship the group of nine companions sent out from Rivendell in Book 1 with the mission of destroying the Ring of Power, this fellowship was divided at the very end of the first book. They split into three groups. So Frodo Baggins and his friend Sam press forward toward the dark land of Mordor with the ring, intent on fulfilling the quest by unmaking the ring in the fires of Mount Doom. Their friends and fellow hobbits, Merry and Pippin, are captured by orcs, who are headed for Isengard, the stronghold of the dark wizard Saruman. And then the remaining members of the Fellowship who have survived this far, the ranger Aragorn, the dwarf Gimli, and the wood elf Legolas, form their own little search party with the mission of rescuing Merry and Pippin. So they set out across the land of Rohan in pursuit of the orcs. So those are the three small groups that we're following throughout the two towers. And for the first half of the book, Tolkien focuses exclusively on the search party and the two captured hobbits. He does not show us Frodo and Sam at all until the second half of the book, which switches to their story as they make the difficult journey toward Mordor. So first, we're following Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas in their attempt to rescue Merry and Pippin. And ultimately, they aren't exactly successful in this undertaking, but when we get a glimpse of what happens from Merry and Pippin's perspective, we find that they do get rescued, but in an unlikely way by unlikely people. And meanwhile, war is getting underway in the land of Rohan. The wizard Saruman is determined to conquer the free peoples of Rohan as quickly as possible with a massive army of orcs he has assembled. And so the first part of the Two Towers comes to a head in the Battle of Helm's Deep, which Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas participate in after they had to abandon their quest for Merry and Pippin. So that is the very brief overview of the first half of the Two Towers. 
In the second half, we return to the ring bearer, Frodo, and his servant, Sam. They are struggling across very unwelcome territory, barren mountains and marshes, and they're not even certain of the best road to Mordor. But pretty soon, Gollum, the creature who used to possess the ring years ago, crosses their path. Or uh, more properly, I guess, he has been hunting them for weeks, and the hobbits finally confront him. And surprisingly, he actually agrees in the end to be their guide to Mordor. And they allow this, um, although, of course, they completely distrust his motives because they know that all he wants is the ring of power for himself. But with this strange arrangement, the three continue together, Frodo and Sam tentatively following Gollum's lead. They encounter various obstacles along the way, they have to reroute at one point, and they even get detained briefly by men of Gondor, who end up letting them go free again once they understand Frodo's quest to destroy the ring. But all the while, it's pretty clear that Gollum is playing some game, but neither the hobbits nor we readers are quite sure what the game is, and we don't really have a choice but to continue following the path that Gollum lays out. Eventually, though, the end of the Two Towers comes to a climax when we do learn the game Gollum has been playing, the trap he was setting for Frodo and Sam all along, and the hobbits have to face their most difficult and most terrifying conflict up to that point. And although both Frodo and Sam show great courage in this, things don't all turn out well. And The Two Towers ends on quite a cliffhanger, actually. Which, of course, just makes us eager to read Book 3, The Return of the King, as fast as we can. But for today, we are limiting ourselves to discussing The Two Towers only. Now, there is quite a bit of darkness in The Two Towers. Well, there's darkness in the whole trilogy, of course, but we both start and end The Lord of the Rings in the peaceful, pleasant land of the Shire, whereas in the middle of the story, the Shire and all it represents are a little hard to find, hard even to remember. By this time, our heroes have already met danger and death on their journey, and looking ahead, there's not much hope for anything better. They are far from home, and they still have very far to travel if they're going to reach their goal. Um, but the road ahead looks even darker than the road behind them. So they're really in the thick of things in the two towers, and light in the darkness is difficult to find. But it is not impossible to find the light. So the Lord of the Rings books are deeply loved, of course, but they're also the subject of a lot of criticism from various angles. And one objection I have heard raised against the Lord of the Rings is the idea that it's too dark. And at least in my experience, this objection usually comes from people who haven't actually read the trilogy. They they just kind of um, assume some things about it. And I understand 
uh, if you hear people talk about the battles and, you know, monsters and all those things that Tolkien does write about, it can sound as though his books spend a lot of time dwelling on really evil things. But that is not accurate. Um, and it's not a fair assessment of Tolkien's approach to his writing. He knows very well that it is dangerous to explore darkness too deeply. He says as much in The Lord of the Rings itself. In Book 1, um, the Council of Elrond is lamenting the treachery of the wizard Saruman, who had been their ally for ages, and commenting on the fact that Saruman used to be helpful because he learned all about the strategies and weapons of the Dark Lord, Elrond says, it is perilous to study too deeply the arts of the enemy, for good or for ill. So Tolkien, you know, says this and he affirms it in the way he writes. It is perilous to study too deeply the arts of the enemy. As he writes, Tolkien is very careful not to spend too much time in the conversation or the mindset of the villains in the story. And when he does have to portray to some measure what they're up to, he truthfully depicts evil as repulsive. That's where I think a lot of the danger comes in when authors um, or people in general are intrigued by evil. That's a problem. Because no, the reality is evil is boring and evil is ugly and disgusting and painful, and you want to stay as far away from it as possible. That is what's true, and that is what Tolkien consistently depicts as true. He does not love darkness, and he has no fascination with it. He had confronted too much evil and suffering in his own life to be the least bit enamored of it. Now, ironically, you do hear the opposite criticism as well sometimes. Uh, more often, I think, by people who have actually read the trilogy, but I think they've misunderstood it. These critics claim that The Lord of the Rings isn't dark enough. They claim that it's not realistic, um, that Tolkien is an idealist. There's too much hope and victory and goodness in his stories. It's not true to life. Well, first of all, these critics are obviously a little cynical about real life, um, and if your day-to-day -day worldview is that there is no God and no heaven and the only sure things in life are death and taxes, then yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Uh, the Lord of the Rings wouldn't be dark enough for you, um, because that is not Tolkien's worldview. But if you, like Tolkien, have what I believe is a truer worldview, a more realistic view, that yes, the world is full of a lot of suffering, but that evil and chaos are not the primary forces at work in the universe, that in fact, an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful God is the beginning and end of all things, then I think that Tolkien's story is beautifully realistic. He's not some innocent idealist who is naive about the real power of darkness. He knows exactly how strong darkness can be, and it is terrifyingly strong. 
but he still knows that light is stronger. This is a robust worldview, a daring one, and entirely realistic. There, there's nothing naive about Tolkien. Remember how much he himself suffered in his life. He grew up in very challenging circumstances. He lost both his parents at a young age. He, as a young man, fought in the Great War, uh, the war to end all wars we once thought, and he was one of the very few survivors. Actually, in his preface to The Lord of the Rings itself, he remarks that by 1918, all but one of my close friends were dead. And then a generation later, his sons were fighting in World War II, even as he wrote The Lord of the Rings. So he knew exactly what war is, what evil is, and what suffering is. So he, he does not see the world through rose-colored glasses. In fact, he does the much harder and braver thing of looking straight into the night of the world and picking out the points of light that are the stars. There's, there's a wonderful little passage in um, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, which I, I have to read because it's so relevant to this. Um, and with Lewis and Tolkien being such good friends, I think it's appropriate. Um, and in fact, it'll kind of lead into something else I want to say about the Lord of the Rings. Um, so in Mere Christianity, Lewis makes this observation. He writes, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. So I think Lewis is on to something true here. And if this is indeed what it means to be a realist, like Christ, then I would say Tolkien is definitely a realist. Now, like I mentioned, I think Lewis's insight here can point us toward other truths that Tolkien teaches us in The Lord of the Rings. Good is bigger and better than evil. It's stronger and wiser, and it's infinitely more varied and beautiful and interesting. That is what Tolkien believes, and I think he's absolutely right. And because good is so much bigger and better than evil, good can understand evil, but evil cannot understand good. That is very simply just how reality works. Those who choose darkness are literally in the dark. You need light in order to see. Um, so evil actually limits itself. This is one of the important things that 
the Lord of the Rings actually taught me as a teenager, um, or at least helped me understand in a more concrete way. When the heroes of Tolkien's story decide that their only hope to defeat the Dark Lord is to try to destroy the Ring of Power, they know that this is a very slim hope. Um, It is a daunting, seemingly impossible task to send someone secretly into the Dark Lord's own land of Mordor, a place filled with evil, to take the Ring of Power all the way to Mount Doom without being caught. This is an outrageous, very unlikely plan. But the one thing that gives our heroes a shred of hope, the one thing that could make the plan actually work, is the simple fact that the idea of it will never enter the Dark Lord's imagination. He will never see it coming. Gandalf says this about the Dark Lord Sauron. He says, He is very wise and weighs all things to a nicety in the scales of his malice. But the only measure that he knows is desire, desire for power, and so he judges all hearts. Into his heart the thought will not enter, that any will refuse it, that having the ring we may seek to destroy it. If we seek this, we shall put him out of reckoning." Now, now, did you catch that line in the middle? The only measure that he knows is desire, and so he judges all hearts. This is a crucial insight that Tolkien is offering us. Evil can only see or imagine itself. If my heart is defined by selfishness, I cannot truly comprehend someone else's heart being defined by love, um, or generosity, or self-sacrifice. So the Dark Lord cannot dream of the Fellowship's true mission, because it would never even occur to him to resist the temptation of the Ring's power. So evil judges all other hearts by its own. And often that is exactly what causes its downfall. Um, And along that line is the last thing I just want to mention that Tolkien teaches us about darkness. Evil is self-destructive. Yes, heroes are needed to stand up and fight the darkness, uh, because if they weren't doing that, they would be part of the darkness themselves. But in all this, it's a fundamental truth that the nature of evil is to destroy itself from within. And we see this a lot more in book three of the trilogy. There are multiple examples there, but we already start to see it in book two. Um, And I think Shelob, the spider, at the end of the Two Towers is a great example. Yes, Frodo and Sam fight her because they're good guys and that's what makes them good guys. But the irony is that Shelob ultimately destroys herself as she tries to destroy the hobbits. Sam is not physically strong enough to stab through her thick hide with his sword, but Shelob is strong enough. And as she bears down on Sam trying to crush him, she unknowingly rams herself down onto the blade that he's holding, and that is her destruction. So that's just one uh, very literal 
visible example of evil's self-destructiveness, but it's a principle that we see not just here, but uh, throughout the whole trilogy. So, is there too much darkness in The Lord of the Rings? Is there not enough? I think Tolkien finds an amazingly wise and truthful balance. He understands evil, likely even better than evil understands itself, and he finds it pitiable and distasteful, which I think any rational and realistic person would agree with. So Tolkien shows us that when good confronts evil, evil will not win, not in the end. Sometimes it gains a temporary victory, but good is the ultimate principle of the world. It's deeper and older than evil. And given enough time, light will always conquer the darkness. And these are truths we can cling to in our own lives in the real world when things look hopeless around us. You know, yes, we say that Tolkien wrote fantasy, um, but in his own words, he strove for applicability in his stories. The realities he explores are relevant to our lives, and they enrich our minds and hearts. And in fact, I, I want to close this episode with a passage from the end of The Two Towers that is among my favorite scenes from the whole trilogy. And in it, Tolkien actually demonstrates exactly how we should be reading and applying stories in our own lives. Um, he gives us this little model inside The Lord of the Rings of how stories like The Lord of the Rings can inspire and transform us. So this is from the uh, penultimate chapter of book two, and Sam and Frodo are resting briefly as they climb the mountains that encircle Mordor. And they have a little conversation about stories, and it's transformative. And I'm going to read it to you, nearly uh, a whole page, because I think it's important. So Sam starts out. He says, The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo. Adventures, as I used to call them. I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for, because they wanted them, because they were exciting, and life was a bit dull. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered or the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have been just landed in them, usually. Their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know, because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on, and not all to a good end, mind you. At least not to what folk inside a story and not outside it call a good end. You know, coming home, and finding things all right, though not quite the same, like old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they may be the best tales to get landed in. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. I wonder, said Frodo, but I don't know. And that's the way of a real tale. Take any one that you're fond of. You may know or guess what kind of tale it is, happy ending or sad ending, but the people in it don't know, and you don't want them to. And Sam replies, No, sir, of course not. 
Baron now. He never thought he was going to get that Silmaril from the Iron Crown in Thangorodrim, and yet he did, and that was a worse place and a blacker danger than ours. But that's a long tale, of course, and goes on past the happiness and into grief and beyond it. And the Silmaril went on and came to Arindil. And why, sir, I never thought of that before. We've got, you've got, some of the light of it in that star glass that the lady gave you. Why to think of it, we're in the same tale still. It's going on. So do you see what happened there? We are breaking down the wall between myth and reality. And that is a good thing when it's done this way. Sam is identifying with the heroes of legend. He is seeing the continuity of the world. He recognizes a connection between his story and the tales of history. This is so important. And this is how we are all supposed to read stories. Our lives are not so different from the lives of bygone heroes. Or at least they don't have to be different. Um, did you catch what Sam identified as the prerequisite for a story's existence? The hero keeps going. Even when he has chances of turning back, he keeps going. If the hero gives up, his story is over and he gets forgotten. But if the hero keeps going, he leaves a story behind. This is fundamental, uh, though it is anything but easy to keep going. But this principle, Sam and Frodo have learned from stories. And it's one of the most important things Sam and Frodo's own story can teach us. And it is not at all a coincidence that the hobbits encounter the spider Shelob immediately after having this conversation. Um, it was their preparation. Their talk about stories and their realization that they themselves are a continuation of the story of Arendil and the Silmaril. That very realization equips them for the challenge that they don't realize they're about to face. And the light of Arendil that they possess is one of their strongest weapons against Shelob, it turns out. And they had almost forgotten about it until it came up in this conversation. So it's just an amazing little scene that perfectly sets up the adventure that follows. And I think it can teach us so much as readers about how we should approach stories, how we can gain wisdom and motivation from stories we've heard, and how we should see ourselves as participants in a story that is much bigger than we often realize. So, those are some of my big takeaways from The Two Towers. Of course, there are dozens and dozens of more themes and beautiful passages that you could discuss in this book alone, much less the whole trilogy. But I had to choose just a few topics to focus on, and I'm sure there are many other reviewers and commentators you can read from who do a much better job than I ever could covering some of those other themes. But this has been what I have to share with you today, and I hope it has been perhaps helpful and interesting. I am just loving getting to talk about Tolkien's work 
And I can hardly wait for our discussion in our next episode in two weeks about the final book of the trilogy, The Return of the King. So thank you for listening today, and be sure to tune in next time for one more episode on The Lord of the Rings. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson, and if you ever want to learn more about me and my work as a Christian playwright, you can visit my website, kittywayandproductions.com. I'll be back in two weeks.